Thank you for joining us uh, here at All Nations. We are in the first half of our Christmas series, and the, the title and theme of our series is Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout these next four weeks leading into Christmas, we have been examining what it means and how we can experience the presence of God. Now, if I'm honest, when I think about God's presence, I always find myself conflicted between two feelings. The first is uh, this desire to experience the presence of God. I have a great fondness for it, and I I long for it. So there's this desire. There's this positive feeling towards it. But then the second thing that comes very quickly after that desire is the disconnect. It's the distance, right? Right? I don't always and regularly feel like I am abiding in God's presence. A lot of times it feels like it's something I'm groping for or reaching or pursuing, but never really resting in. And um, I'm sure you've sensed that as well, that when we sing about God's presence or pray about it or talk about it, there's both this like desire and distance. Well, last week, Pastor DC, as he preached uh, our first message in this series, Uh, He preached on the Garden of Eden, and he explained why we feel this way. Why do we all long for God's presence and at the same time struggle with it and struggle in experiencing it? And the reason why is because God has both created us for communion, but at the same time, because of the fall, we lost that communion, right? That communion has been marred. That communion has been broken. The moment Adam and Eve chose sin, Over obedience in Genesis chapter 3, God's great design for us to experience his presence, to walk with him, right? In Genesis 3, there's this picture of God walking in the garden during the cool of day, right? In with Adam and Eve, right? We've lost that. We've lost that paradise. We've lost that privilege because of the fall. Now, church, did you know that the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, that is, that is God's story of fixing the problem of the fall. That's God's work. Genesis 3 to Revelation is God's story, God's redemptive work to fix the problem of sin. The rest of the Bible is about God reconciling us, redeeming us, and restoring our communion with him through the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ. And that's why theologians call the Bible redemptive history. Okay? The Bible of, is God's story of redemption. Well, in today's message, we're going to continue with this, with this idea of experiencing the presence of God. And instead of Genesis, we're going to move forward to the book of Exodus. And we're going to see how even in the wilderness, even as Israel is wandering and, uh, and struggling with faith and struggling with idolatry, that our God is a God who draws near to us. That our God is a God who works to establish his presence with us. And today we're going to focus on uh, the great symbolism, right, and the image of the tabernacle, that place of worship, that place of holiness and the presence of God to lead us to understand who God is as Emmanuel, God with us. Now, um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I've never tried to cover so many chapters and passages of Scripture, and so this is a first. Uh, the first sermon went a little long. I'm going to try to keep it real tight for the second sermon and, and uh, correct the mistakes that I made. Uh, but we're going to do a kind of flyover, these passages in Exodus. But my hope is that as we kind of take a, bit, a step back, and look at the big picture of the tabernacle and even of the story of the golden calf, right? And um, 
God's renewing his covenant with his people, that we're going to see how zealous and passionate God is to establish his presence with you, right? With us as his people. And so there's three points that we're gonna go over today. And first is, um, we're gonna look at God's desire to dwell among his people, okay? His desire to dwell among us. Second, we're gonna see God's refusal to dwell among his people, okay? And uh, there's a shocking moment where God says, I am not going to walk with you. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not gonna dwell with you. There are conditions under which God will not share his presence with us. And we wanna look at that very soberly. And then lastly, uh, we wanna look at God's solution, okay? His ultimate solution to dwell among us. And so first, his desire. Second, the refusal. And lastly, his solution to dwell among his people. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 24. This is going to be the first of our passages uh, today. So Exodus chapter 24, and we will be reading um, the first two verses. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 to 2. And it's also going to go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel in worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Amen. Amen. It's a shocking passage. What's going on here? In the first half of Exodus, right, Israel has been miraculously delivered from slavery under Egypt. That's the kind of whole story that, that like Disney Prince of Egypt movie, I'm sure all the parents have seen it because of their kids, and maybe some of our college students grew up as junior high, you know, and, and it's just the amazing story, the 10 plagues, right, and the deliverance of the Hebrews in the parting of the Red Sea, and they walk over dry land, and now Israel has entered into the wilderness, okay, they've entered into the wilderness, and they are hoping and journeying towards the promised land. Now, if you go back and you remember kind of the Hebrews and Egypt and Pharaoh, do you remember Moses' first request to Pharaoh? His first request wasn't for freedom, not to like set us free and, and let us leave the land. Instead, he said, let us go into the wilderness that we could worship God. Okay, the, whole, the first request Moses made was, Pharaoh, let the Hebrews go into the wilderness that we can worship and then we'll come back, right? But he refuses and all that crazy stuff happens, right? Um, well, here they are. They're in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness to worship God. God has set them free and liberated them. But what do we see in Exodus chapter four? Only one person gets to go close. Only one person gets to experience the glory and presence of God, and that is Moses. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, and everyone else, they have to worship from afar. There is distance. There is disconnect. This was the state of God's relationship to Israel. No direct access, only like his relationship to Israel was primarily through a mediator, a leader, a leader and a prophet like Moses. Um, church, I've done my fair share of flying throughout my life. Um, and whether it's going home to visit my family or on a vacation or a mission trip or ministry, I'm always flying a couple times a year. Okay? I normally pretty much always do economy, right? sometimes economy plus. Right, back when I was young, I got hooked up with like random like business class or uh, like a first class bonus, but those days are long behind me, right? 
Um, but there's one thing I've never experienced in my life, okay? I've never been in the VIP lounge, right? Have you guys been in the v- Don't tell me because I'm going to get jealous, right? <laughs> I've never been in that VIP lounge, right? I'm just always with the common folk. I've never experienced the luxury of like truly privileged travel. I haven't even done like TSA pre-check, right? And then I just envy all the guys that have the short line and I'm like, oh, like, that's the life, right? I don't know what goes on in those VIP medallion special lounges. I just imagine like the free food, the free drinks, the more comfortable seats, the faster internet and the bigger TVs and whatever it might be. But I have, not only have I never been in one, I've never even seen one. Because if you walk by in the airport, it's just like thick, dark door. There's no mirror. There's no windows. You can't peek in, right? Common people cannot even look into a VIP lounge. There is distance, right? I only admire it from afar and only the special privileged people, right? So um, if you have a ticket and can get me in, get me in, all right, guys? I will, I will I'll love you. I'll remember you forever, right? But yeah, that's been my experience. And we've had these moments where we are not on the inside. We don't have the access. We don't have the privilege. We're looking at something. We're looking at someone from afar, And that's what Israel was experiencing in the wilderness. Yes, they were so glad that they had a champion in Moses who could go up to the mountain and the cloud would descend and he would enjoy the presence of God. And yet, that was him. And this was us. He got to go close to God. We're like not even allowed to touch the mountain, right? The cool thing is this. Moses spends 40 days on the mountain. And God not only gives Moses the Ten Commandments, God not only delivers his law and his instructions to Moses, but God actually tells Moses, I have a plan to draw near to all of my people, right? So God wasn't like, hey, Moses, it's you and me forever. We're just going to be BFFs. No, during those 40 days, as Moses goes up to the mountain, God reveals to him that he has a plan to dwell with his people. He has a heart to dwell with his people. So in chapter 25, God tells Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they would take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Okay, that's verse eight and nine in chapter 25, that I would dwell in their midst. I want them to make a sanctuary. I want them to build a tabernacle because I don't want this distance. I don't want there to be a divide between me and my people. I want to be their God. I want them to be my people. You see, church, this is the purpose of the tabernacle so that Israel will no longer worship from afar but experience God's holy and gracious presence. Our God is a God who wants to dwell with his people. He is a God who wants to draw near to his people. Now, from Exodus chapter 25 to 31, the following chapters, we have God's detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. God gives dimensions, right, in cubits. We're like, what is a cubit? But look it up, Siri will tell you. And then uh, there are the materials. He wants like gold, silver, bronze, and different kinds of uh, fabrics and furnishings. And all, there's just an incredible, almost, um, almost, uh, yeah, just incredible detail Uh, regarding the building of the tabernacle. God begins from the inside out. He begins with the most holy articles, right? The Ark of the Covenant, 
right? In the holy of the holies and then to the holy place. And so he builds from the inside out the most sacred objects to the most ordinary, right? And now I don't have time to go through all the details of the uh, tabernacle, but I'm going to put up on the screen a rendering of what kind of an artist thinks the tabernacle probably looked like. And uh, that's going to go up on the screen. And we're going to see all of the items. Uh, the tabernacle at the core is a tent, right? 15 feet high, 45 feet long, right? And then outside the tabernacle, there's an outer court. So there's a fencing as well. And there's just amazing symbolism, uh, amazing, uh, an amazing message in all of the aspects of the tabernacle to tell us who God is, to remind us who we are, and how he saves us and makes his presence known. Let's start with a couple quick things. The tabernacle was to stand at the center of Israel's camp, okay? Once again, Exodus, they're wandering through the wilderness. Every time they march a couple miles, they got to pack up and then move. And every time they settle down, they got to unpack and they set up the tabernacle, undo the tents, right? Um, so it was a very intense, very thorough process. The house of the Lord, this sanctuary was to be at the center of Israel's camp. The total footprint was less than a quarter of a football field. There's one entrance into the tabernacle, like our church, right? One way in. One, we need multiple entrances. But uh, there's one entrance, and it was facing east. And once you enter, every person, every Hebrew, every Jew, uh, they entered uh, through the outer court. And this is for the Hebrews, priestly and non-priestly. And the first thing you would see when you enter into the uh, outer court is the altar of sacrifice, right? The altar of burnt offering. And here, this is where everyone brought their animals, right? Your fattened calves, right? Your, 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 your rams, your sheep, your goats without blemish. And every time you go there, you remember the fact that, that God is a holy God, right? That you have sinned against him, and yet he is a saving God. He is a God who's made provision to forgive you and to save you. And through this substitute, through this sacrifice, right, your sins can be atoned for. That's what the altar of burnt offering pointed towards. Now, then there's the wash basin or the bronze basin. And this was a, a big basin where water would be poured. And only the priests would touch this because the priests would need to wash and cleanse and purify themselves before they go into the holy place, right? And so uh, that just reminded everyone that even the priests, as holy as you might be, you are stained with sin. And you need to be cleansed. And yet our God is a God who washes us clean of all of our sins. The priests only could enter the holy place, right? And this is the actual tent. This is the 15-foot tall, uh, tall tent, right? And there are two parts in the tent. There's the holy place and then the holy of holies. Okay, those are the two parts of the tent. The priests only can enter this tent. And in the holy place... There's the golden lampstand, the table of the showbread, and the altar of the incense. Okay? Each of these reminds Israel that God was their provider, that God is their light, and their God hears them. Okay? The showbread points back to the manna, right? the manna and the quail that they were depending on that God was providing day by day. The showbread pointed to that. Right? The lampstand reminds them that God is their, that was the only source of light inside the Holy of Holies. It reminds them that God is their light. God is their guide, right? And then the altar of incense, that as they burn it, it goes up to the heavens and they remember that their prayers are heard by God, that their worship is received by God. All of this is happening in the holy place. And then there's a curtain, a curtain that separates the holy place 
from the Holy of Holies. And there's something cool about this curtain because on the curtain is etched and stitched pictures and images of a cherubim. And if you remember what a cherubim is, that's the warrior angel. As Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, right, east of Eden, God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword to protect the Garden of Eden so that nobody would be able to get back in. Does that make sense? Right? And that whole story is just a reminder of God is holy, right? And man is sinful and fallen, and a cherubim is guarding that gap. The same thing here. There's a cherubim separating the Holy of Holies and the holy place. Okay? In the Holy of Holies, there's only one thing, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents the throne of God represents the authority and the majesty of God. There are two angels on top of the ark and their wings are coming together and it, build, it creates a throne. And the Jews, they believed and, and God said, this is where God's glory, this is where his presence would reside in the holy of holies. As the king of his people, he is sitting upon the throne of the mercy seat. And this holy of holies is a place where not any priest, but only one priest, the high priest of Israel enters in one day a year on the day of atonement, right? To make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. That's the, that's the tabernacle. That's the layout. And at each element of the tabernacle, it shows Israel what it means to worship God. It reminds Israel that God is holy and majestic. And at the same time, this holy and righteous God has made a provision for our sin. That God knows us. He knows we are unclean. He knows we are, 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 are stained. He knows we are wayward. And so there are sacrifices. There are cleansing. There are offering. There are promises. There is mercy for all of us. In order for God to dwell among Israel, in order for them to draw near to God, the tabernacle reminds us, right, that God has first drawn near to us, that God has atoned for all of our sins. Now, if you've ever read through Exodus, you'll find that the first half is extremely exciting. It's awesome. Okay, the first half is so dynamic because you got the plagues, you got the story of Moses, you've got the great deliverance, all of that uh, crazy fantastic stuff. And then the second half, not to kind of profane the word of God, but it is dry, right? You hit chapter 25 and you read all the way to 40. There's 40 chapters in Exodus and you feel like you're reading the same thing over again. God is like, bring acacia wood and 50 rings of bronze. And this must be like 15 cubits and make sure that you use purple linens. And like, all, you're just like, oh my, this is why I don't like reading the Old Testament, that kind of stuff, right? Um, chapter 25 to 31, okay, details, like I was saying, as Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, God is giving him the instructions. I want you to build the tabernacle, and here are the details on how to do it. He was like giving him the verbal blueprint, okay? Chapters 35 to 40 are almost the exact same words in the previous chapters, but the difference is they're actually doing it. Okay, so the first section is, this is the description. The second section is them actually doing it. So they're like, oh yeah, we got all these pieces of wood. We put, put them together. And then all the priests wore these garments. And like, it, literally, but the, 
mirror one another, and it is really redundant, really dry, really difficult to get through. But there are three chapters in the middle of these two kind of tabernacle descriptions and tabernacle building that are so crucial for us to consider and so crucial for us to understand. You see, in chapter 32, we get the story of the golden calf. And I'm sure if you've spent any time in the church, you've heard of that one. In chapter 33, you have the story of Moses saying, show me your glory. And God says, I will, but you can't see my face. You can only see my backside, right? And it's crazy. He puts him in a crack and the Lord passes by and then Moses, like, it's, it's insane. It's, in, it's intense. Chapter 34, we have the re-covenant uh, committing of God to his people. Those are three crucial chapters that sit in between the tabernacle command and promise and the actual tabernacle being built. Now, why do I bring this up? Because... In the first section, chapter 25, God promises, I want to dwell with my people. I want you guys to build me a sanctuary. But then God refuses. Because of the golden calf, because of Israel's idolatry, God God turns and he pivots and he says, you know what? I am not going to dwell with you guys. I am not going to be your God. And so I, I want us to, I'm going to summarize really quickly the story of the golden calf. Moses, he's been gone for 40 days, Mount Sinai worshiping, meeting with God, getting all of the details for the law and for the tabernacle. But 40 days is a long time. And so Israel starts getting restless. They're like, is Moses even alive? Right? We see the cloud, we hear the thunder, we see the lightning and the fire. Is Moses even alive? They don't know what happened to him. They want to worship. They want to continue on. And so they tell Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, give us something to worship. And Aaron Instead of saying no, he says, okay, give me your gold. And he collects everyone's gold and precious metals, and he forms a calf, a golden calf for them. And he says, this is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. And you know what Israel does? They start worshiping. They throw a festival and a feast. They throw a huge party, and they celebrate this golden calf. And they are bowing down before him and saying, thank you for delivering us out of Pharaoh's hand, out of Egypt, into freedom. They were worshiping that calf. That is idolatry. Giving credit to something that doesn't belong to that idol, that object. When God deserves the glory, when God deserves the praise, you're robbing him of that. And you're worshiping something else. Worshiping a created thing rather than the creator. Well, while Moses is up there on Mount Sinai with God, God sees them. He sees them and he, he burns hotly in anger against Israel. And he actually tells Moses, I'm going to destroy your people, right? I'm gonna consume them. And here, Moses, here's what we're gonna do. You and me, we are gonna start a new nation. We're gonna do it right. Those Hebrews, those Israelites down there, they have lost their mind worshiping a golden calf. I'm going to destroy them. We're going to press the reset button, okay? (sighs) Moses intercedes, and he just says, God, like, you're going to look really crazy if you deliver them out of Egypt only to destroy them, right? Very Very reasonable, very rational, okay? Moses intercedes for them. God pauses. God said, he says, go see for yourself. And so we think Moses is pretty even keel, right? 
He goes down the mountain and then he sees the insanity. He sees the idolatry. He sees them worshiping and bowing down and losing their minds over this golden calf. And Moses has the two stone tablets. And what does he do? He throws them on the ground and breaks the tablets. The Ten Commandments, law God has written with his own finger, his command, and he is so besides himself. He breaks these tablets. He rebukes the people. And it's such chaos. He cries out, who is on the Lord's side? Who is with Yahweh? Who remembers the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And this is when the Levites stand with him. Right? This is before the Levites became the priestly tribe. Because of this act, the Levites became the priestly tribe of Israel. The Levites stood besides Moses and they fought and they struck down 300 of these idol-worshiping Hebrews. Okay? That's how intense it was. We, we, we think it's just like a casual, oh, they're probably just singing some old golden calf praise songs. No, this was lose their mind idolatry to the point where swords break out and there is fighting and there is death. God steps in as well and he sends a plague upon Israel. Okay. Now just kind of pause and think about this is what this is why I appreciate because I, I appreciate this kind of narrative because we've only studied the golden calf as the story of idolatry. Okay. But just remember, God had just promised his presence with his people. He says, I want to dwell with them. Have them gather their offerings. Have them build a sanctuary. And I'm going to be in the midst of my people. And then the golden calf happens. And this is God's response. This is God's response. This is Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Okay, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you know God is angry when he won't even call them my people, right? He says, you and your people, right? You and those people that you brought out of Egypt, you guys go up from here. To the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What did God just say? You know what God told them? He says, I am a God who keeps promises. Okay. I remember my promise to Abraham, my promise to bless him, to make him a great nation, right? to bless the nations through him, to give him a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God made that promise to Abraham. That promise was good to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the Hebrews. So God's like, you know what? I'm not going to go back on my word. You guys can have that land. I want you to go into it. Even more so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send an angel, a warrior angel, to go before you, and he will strike down the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, right? All for you guys. But here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to go with you. You can have the land. You can have the promise, but you will not have my presence. That's what God says. Because if I go with you, 
you idolatrous, stiff-necked people. And think about stiff-necked, right? All the parents who have Asian kids on New Year's Day, you know what it means when you're trying to get your kid to bow down and they will not bow down before their grandma or grandpa. That is stiff-necked, right? And God is like, you Hebrews will not bow down to me. You will bow down to some golden calf. You will not bow down and worship me. You are stiff-necked. And if we stay in this relationship together, I'm gonna destroy you guys. For your sake, I need to leave and you need to just go. This is how Israel responded to their credit. Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word that God was not going to go with them, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Amen. I want to give Israel a little bit of credit here. Okay. God calls them out on their idolatry. Their hearts are broken. They realize what they have done. And they don't just say, God, I'm sorry. They actually repent. Does that make sense? And I want to encourage you guys to consider that. We all are familiar with our own idolatries. We all know our own sins, right? We have our own prides, and whether it's control, whether it's ambition, whether it's greed, whether it's lust, vanity, all of these things. And we are quick to say, yeah, 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 that's, I struggle with that, okay? But you know what Israel did? They took off the ornaments, right? And they actually repented. They didn't say, oh, we made a mistake. They actually bowed down before God, realizing that they had sinned against him, realizing that the the wrath of God was now over them. So they changed. Not only was Israel in a posture of repentance, but Moses He has an amazing prayer. He once again goes to bad for Israel and he intercedes on behalf of them. And so this is is actually really fascinating, okay? You know how like the tent, the tabernacle was supposed to be in the middle of the camp, okay? God's like, I wanna dwell with my people. I wanna be in their midst. I wanna be their God, center of the camp. You know what Moses has to do? After the golden calf, he has to set up his camp outside the, or tent outside the camp. Because God's like, I am not going to be in the middle of them. Not right now, not like this, because if I'm there, I'm going to consume them. So Moses sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp of Israel, and then a cloud of God descends upon the tent. All of the Israelites stand outside their tents, and they're worshiping as Moses is meeting with God. But they know that their, their future, their fate is on the line right there. Right? But such a Such a contrast, such a juxtaposition. The tent of meaning is supposed to be in the middle. But because of this sin and idolatry, it's outside the camp. But this is what Moses says. Verse 15, chapter 35. One of his greatest statements and prayers to the Lord. And he said to him, Moses saying to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Amen. Amen. Moses knew what set Israel apart was not conquest, not power, not privilege, not accomplishment. What set Israel apart, what gave them an identity was the presence of God. And Moses says, if you're not gonna be with us, don't send us in. If you're not gonna be with us, what, what, what does it even mean to be Israel? What does it even mean to be the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It is you, God, you're going with us that makes us distinct. And God is pleased by that answer. He is pleased by that prayer. Now think about God's proposal to Israel. You guys can have the promised land. I will pave the way. You can have it all. Go right in. But here's the thing, I'm not gonna go with you. You won't have my presence. Brothers and sisters, how would you respond if God made that offer to you? What is your promised land in this life today? College students, is it that internship? Is it that job? Is it that grad school program? Working, working adults, is it that promotion? right? Is it that relationship? Is it that perfect spouse? Is it your, your perfect children or your retirement plan or that home? What is it that is your promised land, that land of milk and honey, that place that will give you security, that will give you strength, that will make you whole? What if God said you can have it? In fact, it's going to come to you with, least, with the least amount of resistance. God's gonna do all the heavy lifting. You can have all of it, but I'm not gonna be with you. How would you respond? Most of us, in a moment of spirituality, and because we're in church, we'll say, no, no, God, I want you, right? I want you, I, I don't need the raise. I don't need the job. I don't need the girl. I don't need the whatever. I want you, Lord. We'll say that very spiritually. But I want to say this, our hearts and our lives, they betray us, don't they? They betray us. Parents, when we think of the promised land, in our culture for so many of us, is it not your children? Is it not your children as like your legacy to see them healthy, to see them whole, to see them flourish, to see them succeed? Aren't they your promised land? And hopefully they'll succeed and be your retirement, right? That's the truth in our culture. But what grieves you more? What scares you more? The fear that they won't succeed or the, the fear that they won't have faith? Okay. Is it their lack of success, their lack of education, their lack of strength and accomplishment? Or are you more terrified by their lack of faith? the lack of a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what God tells us in this moment? And, and I'm not saying that our life has to be either or, okay? There are plenty of godly, faithful men and women who have succeeded in this life 
and are champions and heroes of faith. So I'm not setting up this false dichotomy that either you are poor and unsuccessful and you're a loser in this world, or you're like a faithful Christian in, G- like in Christ. But this is a pivotal moment for Israel. And I think all of us need to experience this kind of defining watershed moment where we will ask ourselves, choose this day who you will follow. Choose this day who you will serve. Do we understand that it is the presence of God that makes the promised land so sweet? It is the grace of God. It is the power of God. It is our identity in God that gives us true joy and treasure in this life. Or are you and I going to just say, ah, I want it all. And in fact, if I lose the presence, if I forsake the presence, but have all of the gifts, have all of the provisions, have all of the joys of my little promised land, I'll be okay. I think that's the exchange that you and I settle for. But if we live like that, God will refuse his presence with you. He will. He did it to Israel. And he will not share his glory with another. We need to soberly understand that, church. We keep telling ourselves, we can have it all. It's okay. I will chase my vanity. I will chase my career. I will chase my worldliness. I will, I will yeah, my own desires. And somehow we'll say, but eventually one day I'll like actually get serious about my faith. Later down the line, we procrastinate and push off our discipleship. But what God is telling us today is, no, he will refuse to dwell with you because he will not share his throne. He will not share his glory with another. You and I cannot say, God, I will serve both money and Jesus. Jesus even says that. I will not serve just my family and Jesus. I will not serve myself and Jesus. Jesus wants to be king. Here's the good news, church. He will rightly order everything you need. Jesus himself says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. God is not trying to rob you of flourishing in this life, but he does want to have authority over you and lead you to kingdom flourishing in his life. God will not share his throne. And yet if you and I live in idolatry, he will not dwell with us. He will not share his presence with us. So what is the solution? What is the solution? How can we walk and experience the presence of God? The author of Hebrews tells us in chapters eight and nine that the tabernacle, this tent, this mobile tent was a shadow of a promise of things to come, right? The tabernacle wasn't the end all. That wasn't the end game. It was actually foreshadowing something. That just as through the tabernacle, God was drawing himself closer to his people, we see that there is a greater presence, a greater promise, a greater work in the New Testament. The reason why uh, three weeks from Christmas, we're like in Exodus right now and looking at the tabernacle is because, you know what the tabernacle does? It points to Jesus in Christmas. The tabernacle points to the incarnation. God has drawn even closer to humanity through the incarnation. He wanted to draw close to the tabernacle. He draws even closer Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14. This is what the apostle John writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John here is speaking of Christ and the incarnation. And that word, okay, of Jesus, the word of God, dwelling among us in the Greek. Do you know what word that is? The root word is tabernacle, okay? So John is actually kind of putting a verb to a noun. So he's like, Jesus, the word of God, tabernacled among us as Jesus took on flesh. I know it's awkward, but that's the, that's the image. That's the message that John is trying to communicate with us, that the word has become flesh and tabernacled among us. Just as the tabernacle was God's way of dwelling amongst his people in Moses' day, God's way of dwelling amongst his people in the new covenant is even more complete, more powerful through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is good news, amen? That God has drawn near to the world, not through ceremonies, not through tents, not through just burnt offerings and sacrifices, but he has drawn near to us through his very son, Jesus Christ. Okay? And I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but it doesn't end there. Okay? It gets even better. Because earlier I shared that there's an aspect where we can feel disconnected to the presence of God. right? And even now, if I'm like, church, God and his presence was manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, you can say, well, Pastor Michael, that was 2,000 years ago. What does that mean for us today? If we just sit there and stop with the incarnation of Jesus, then we're like, oh, that's cool. The fullness of God took on flesh and for about 33 years tabernacled in the world. Then Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to heaven. Once again, where's the presence for us? Does that make sense? And I get that. We're gonna be like, because we can just say, that still doesn't make me feel like I'm closer to God right now. That's cool that it happened 2,000 years ago. I believe it. I applaud it. I'll sing about it. I'll praise God for it. But where is the presence of God today? Well, here, even as Jesus ascends, he promised someone greater. He said, someone else is gonna come, all right? Someone else is gonna come and he's gonna be your helper. He's gonna be your comforter and it's the Holy Spirit. And here we see the fulfillment of God's tabernacling with his people. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. This is our last passage. This is what Paul writes. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That the Holy Spirit is tabernacling in us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's make the connections. Let's connect the dots. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle is made of gold, right? Fine linens, wood, and animal skins. During the days of Jesus, Jesus Christ, he was the tabernacle. He manifested the presence of God. Now, where is this tabernacle? Where is the temple of God today? And Paul tells us, it's you and I, it's us. It's in the church, it's through believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and filled by the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, I wanna go ahead and be honest though. Um, We don't like that image. We're like, we are not the temple. I mean, we understand it as a category. We don't like being the temple of God. 
First, because it feels like a big responsibility. Second, it's not something that we like readily access. We don't know what that means in a practical, daily, what does it mean to be the temple of God, right? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit residing in us? But I want to tell you guys that this is key for the Christian life and salvation. The Bible teaches that salvation is not merely something that's propositional or something that you declare, okay? It is not merely historical. It's not merely factual. You are not a Christian just because you say with your lips, I believe in Jesus. Salvation is holistic. It is historical. It is propositional. It is factual, but it is also experiential. It is relational, and it is transformational. It is transformative, okay? For you and I to be reborn in the Spirit, that's not not just an idea, church. That is a reality that God wants us to experience, to be filled and reborn and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be saved. And church, when this transformation occurs, okay, then you are a part of the temple of God. Okay, the moment you are born in the Spirit, God is tabernacling in you and I. And I want to say this, one more thing. It is not measured. You don't get it just because you get mature. I know there's a lot of us like, okay, um, I guess I have to read more, pray more, go on discipleship stuff more, go on missions more. No, not at all, okay? Being the tabernacle of God is not just for pastors, missionaries, and leaders. It is for every single one of us who believe and proclaim that Jesus is Lord, okay? We need to believe that. We need to see that God has called you to a greater life, a greater identity, a greater purpose because he wants to dwell in you. He wants to dwell with you. Church, we are now God's temple and where the spirit dwells, right, where the spirit resides, where the spirit works, that is where his presence is. That's where he is tabernacling within us. This is the extent of God's drawing near to his people. He cannot get any closer, right guys? He cannot get any closer than in your heart, in your soul, sustaining your life. Church, I wish, I wish I could be like, and now this is all you have to do to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I I wish it was that easy, that I could just clap and turn it on, or just like touch you on the forehead and you're like, oh, I got it, right? I simply wanna encourage you, seek the things of the Spirit, to seek him in faith, to know that God will fill you, not because you earn it or not because you deserve it, but because he loves you and he desperately longs to dwell with you so much to the point he did not spare his only son, so much to the point that he comes and he works and he's residing by his Holy Spirit. He is zealous to be working in you and dwelling in you. I wanna invite you to pursue him to long for him, to seek him. Let's pray together.